0: Turn now to the book of Hebrews to chapter 3, and before we begin, we'll pray. Let's bow our heads. Father, it is our desire that your word would accomplish its work in the hearts of those who believe by way of encouragement and exhortation and rebuke and reproof, and it is our desire that your word would accomplish its work in the hearts of those who do not yet believe that it may come by way of conviction and convincing them of the need for a Savior, We pray that through our time spent in your word that you would encourage our hearts together and unite us in the truth and in our love for Christ. Help us to see in your word wonderful things. Open our eyes and open our hearts that we may be changed by your word and sanctified by the truth. We pray that you would accomplish this work through us and in us in the power of your word as we read and study and think together this morning. Grant us grace to understand very difficult things and to appropriate them, and to rest in the confidence that we are secure in Jesus Christ. We praise your great name and thank you in Christ's name. Amen. I know it's been a long while since our study in the Gospel of John, and you miss the Gospel of John, right? Sometimes, like you miss Ecclesiastes? Or do you miss John different than you miss Ecclesiastes? You miss Ecclesiastes kind of like you miss a toothache or a headache? But you do miss it nonetheless, but back in the Gospel of John, there was a theme that we saw over and over again in the text of John, and it is a theme that we didn't just see by by way of a casual, subtle uh, reference that you kind of had to really look beyond the surface in order to catch. It was a predominant theme in the Gospel of John, and it's a theme that is germane to our study in the book of Hebrews. And the theme that I'm talking about is the theme of of the difference between true and genuine saving belief and fake or false belief. And we saw this this in John as we worked our way through it. And as I said, it wasn't a subtle, it was not something you had to really work to pull out. It wasn't a, a subtle theme by any means. In fact, it was right on the surface of entire chapters in John's Gospel. You saw Jesus himself teach on and illustrate and explain the difference between true and false faith in John 6 and in John 8. You see it mentioned in John 2, that's the earliest place that I think we can see it referenced, where it says that in Jerusalem, as a response of the miracles that Jesus was doing, many in the crowds believed on his name at that point. But then John makes the editorial comment. He said Jesus did not commit himself to those who had believed. What was Jesus doing there? Many people believed in him, but Jesus didn't commit himself to them. Now what we see later on in the Gospel of John is that Jesus is absolutely committed to those who believe in him savingly. That's what he says in John chapter 6. Uh, all that come to me, or, or no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and everyone who does come to me and believes in me, I will in no wise cast out. That's Jesus' promise. Believe in me savingly and trust yourself to me and we have the commitment that he is absolutely committed to us. And, but then you have this statement in chapter 2 that Jesus, that many of the people believed on his name Didn't commit himself to them. Why? Because John says Jesus knew the heart of men. He knew those who were His. He knew who belonged to Him, and He knew the condition of that saving faith. And then we get to chapter six, and we find that in response to the miracle of the feeding of the five thousand, and Jesus uh, uh, walking across the sea in the middle of the night, that the crowds were the, the crowds were almost apoplectic in their enthusiasm for Him, and they came by force to make Him king. They saw Him multiply the bread and the fish. And they saw the miracles that he was doing and they said, this truly is the son of David. Let's make him king and put him on David's throne. This is the answer to our expectations. They had a messianic fervor. They believed him to be the Messiah and they believed in him in a certain way and wanted even to take him by force and make him king. But Jesus left and went across the ocean or the sea there with the disciples. And the next day the crowds came to him. And then John chapter 6, that entire bread of life discourse is Jesus explaining to them the problem with their quote-unquote belief. It was not a saving belief. Jesus said, you believe in me because you saw the signs, right? I fed you food. I fed you, the entire multitude. I fed you bread and fish, and so you believed upon me. And then Jesus gives that in that bread of life discourse and explaining to them that I am the bread of life and you must take me, you must repent and take me and believe upon me savingly if you are to have eternal life. And then he used that illustration, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood, in which he was simply using that as the, the idea of eating and drinking as a way of appropriating him and his teaching and his blessings to ourselves. And the one who eats his flesh and drinks his blood in that sense truly has been born again, truly has eternal life in contrast to the crowds. And in response to that difficult teaching about the sovereignty of God and the necessity of taking Christ in that way, what did the crowds do? They just said, eh, it's too tough for us. And they turned around and they walked away. Then you see it again in John chapter 8, when after some miracles in the city of Jerusalem, many people believed on his name again. And then Jesus said to them, you believe on me? Well, if you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And They objected and said, what do you mean free? We've never been slave to any man. Free, we're not in bondage to anything. And then Jesus went on to explain to them, no, you're in bondage to your sin and you're trying to kill me, that is not the response of people who have believed upon him. So in there in John chapter 8, that difference between true faith and false faith is exposed for them, and they are able to see, and we are able to see, that there is a belief in Jesus, which is nothing more than a craftily disguised unbelief. Let me say that again. There is a belief in Jesus that is nothing more than a a very craftily disguised unbelief. There's true belief, there's false belief. And in the Gospel of John, as he wants us to believe upon Jesus, we see this over and over. And then the quintessential example of a fake and false and and facade belief is whom? Judas Iscariot, who left. Here's the difference between true faith and false faith. True faith, when it faces difficulties, clings even tighter to Jesus Christ. The, The confession of a true faith grows stronger in the midst of trials and difficulties Whereas trials and difficulties and sufferings expose a false faith for what it is. The individual who has placed a false faith in Jesus Christ and believes upon him because of some benefit that they can get will be just like Judas in the end. They will find that the cost is too great. They will hear Jesus say things like, unless you believe upon me and are willing to hate your mother and father instead, and love me to that degree, unless you are willing to take up your cross and follow me, unless you are willing to die in my service and live a life of sacrifice and suffering and righteousness, if you're not willing to do that, then you can have no part in me. They hear those demands and eventually they walk away. And that's what Judas did, When Judas realized that he wasn't going to get out of his commitment with Jesus, the thing that he expected, which was a position in the kingdom, maybe at the, the Savior, the Messiah's right hand, running the treasury for the entire kingdom. Once Judas realized he wasn't going to get anything out of that, he sold his interest in it to the highest bidder, 30 pieces of silver, and he hit the bricks and walked away. The difficulties and the disillusionment of, of life circumstances for Judas ended up revealing the false faith for exactly what it is. So there's this distinction between true faith, and false faith, and we see it again here in the book of Hebrews, because in Hebrews chapter 3, we are exposing the, the reality of this false faith, what this false faith is. And we see that there is a group of people who attach themselves outwardly to the Christian church and make, on the surface, a profession of faith in Christ, they can appear for a period of time to be genuine and true believers. They can even imitate some of the graces of salvation and live amongst us without ever really being changed and transformed. That is, a, that is a true reality. It happens every day in churches all over the country. And then there is a difficulty, a challenge, or a discouragement that happens or comes into the life of that professing believer, and they will eventually turn and walk away from Christ. And the author of Hebrews has in chapter 3 an evangelistic concern to those people. He does not want them to forsake their confidence and their confession in Christ and what they have said outwardly. He wants them instead to embrace Jesus fully, even though it means that they're going to sacrifice and have to sacrifice even more than they thought they would have to sacrifice before. Even though they're going to suffer the loss of their possessions and their reputation and their family and their fellowship and all of their traditions, they are to turn their backs entirely on that and to embrace Jesus Christ fully and go headlong into this confession and this confidence. That's what true faith would do. But a false faith, when confronted with the difficulties of suffering and affliction and persecution, a false faith turns the other direction and goes back and abandons the confidence that they have, quote-unquote confidence that they have in Jesus Christ. So there that is the evangelistic concern. The author does not want his readers to miss the promise of God's rest, which he spends chapter 4 describing, the promise of God's rest, which is salvation in Jesus Christ. Turn back, and you're going to miss that. If you, unless you embrace Jesus Christ fully and go forward, you're going to miss the rest that God offers you in the person of Christ. But then to the Christian, there is an encouraging concern. Whereas to the unbeliever, this is an evangelistic concern, and it ought, to, it ought to strike fear into the heart of the unbeliever, who should examine themselves and realize, you know what, I've just been playing games, I ought to embrace Jesus Christ, or I am going to miss this rest. For the believer, it's an encouraging note that we have in Hebrews chapter 3, that the one who is truly saved, who is truly a believer will hold fast all the way to the end. So we're looking today, beginning at verse 14, and going through, well, I was going to go through the end of verse 19, but I'll be honest with you, this morning as I was reviewing all of this, I thought there's no way that we're going to be able to get all the way through the end of verse 19. So today, we're going to be looking at verse 14. And we're going to see in verse 14 that there's a description here of the believer, of belief. And then in verses 15 through 19, there's a description of the unbeliever or unbelief. So let's read the passage together, 14 through the end of the chapter. And then we'll begin looking at verse 14. Actually, let's back up to, to pick it up in verse 12. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. And I want you to notice in verse chapter 4, verse 1, ignore the chapter break. It's essential in this position that you ignore the chapter break. It's not there in the original. We just want to read through it. Notice in verse 1 the reference to rest. Therefore, let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. He he wants the reader to enter fully into the rest that God provides in Jesus Christ. And there is this fear that there may be some who are not believers, not quite believers, really close, but not quite believers, with genuine saving faith, who might fail to enter into that final rest of salvation. And so there should be that fear in the heart of the unbeliever. So today we're looking at verse 14. I want you to read it with me again. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Now, this is not the first time that we've mentioned verse 14, actually, in our study of Hebrews, because do you remember that we touched on this back in verse 6 when we looked at verse 6 and that conditional sentence? And so we've already looked at verse 14 in connection with verse 6, but we're pausing here again to do two things. Number one, I want to remind you of what we looked at and learned in connection with these conditional sentences that we find here in the book of Hebrews in verse 6 and in verse 14. Because many of you said when we we covered that in some detail back in verse 6, that that was very helpful, and I'm glad it was helpful. So here's what I want to do. I want to reinforce all of that, and I'm going to add another piece of interpretive information to this conditional clauses uh, discussion. So verse 14, as with verse 6, is a conditional sentence, and it seems to suggest that our salvation, our ultimate finishing with Christ, and the rest that we enter into, is dependent in some way upon us holding fast to our confidence and our confession. Do you see that with the, the conditional phrase? Go back up to verse 6, and we'll read verse 6 again. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Verse 14, we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Notice that both conditional fra- uh, clauses, both conditional sentences, have the word if in it, obviously. But they also mention holding fast. So it is almost as if the author of Hebrews is repeating something in verse 14 or reinforcing a truth in verse 14 that he has stated in verse 6. Now people who are intent on believing that you can lose your salvation will read these conditional sentences and they will say, see there is the presence of the word if. In verse 6, we are his house if we hold fast to the end. If we don't hold fast to the end, then we fall out and we're no longer his house. And in verse 14, we are partakers of Christ if we hold fast our assurance firm until the end. But if we don't hold fast our assurance firm until the end, we cease becoming partakers of Christ. So it seems as if, because of the conditional sentence structure, that our being in his house and our being partakers of Christ is contingent upon our ability, our willingness, or the inevitability of us holding fast all the way to the end. That we cannot be partakers of Christ if we're not holding fast as if it is possible for us to be holding fast at one point and be partakers of Christ and be in his house. And then we stop and we say, no, I don't like the Christian thing after all. It's not for me. The demands are too great. The people in the pew in front of me smell. The people in the pew behind me can sing horribly. Um, and the people beside me, I don't really like them at all either. So I'm going to leave that, and I'm going to come over here, and I'm no longer going to be a partaker. I'm just going to abandon my Christian faith and my confidence, and therefore I cease being his house, and I cease being a partaker of Christ because I have let go of my Christian confession. That is how it appears, is it not? Well, I asked you the question last time, what is the nature of these conditional sentences? And I want to review that with you this morning, because this is the this is the key question. Does the existence of this conditional sentence indicate a cause and effect relationship between these clauses? We are his house if we hold fast. We are partakers if we hold fast. Does one thing, holding fast, cause the other, being a house, being in his house, or being a partaker in Jesus Christ. What is the relationship between the two clauses? Now, I'm going to break this down into two kind of basic camps. An Arminian perspective, which believes that you can lose your salvation, or that salvation is contingent upon our perseverance, or contingent upon our enduring to the end, or our holding fast, and what might be called a reformed perspective, or... Shorthand, a Calvinist perspective, a Reformed perspective that came out of the Reformation, and that is the belief that our holding fast to the end is not what causes us to become partakers uh, in His of Christ or members of his household. Okay? I'm going to break it down into those two camps. So the individual who believes that it's possible for us to lose our salvation, those who hold to a more Arminian theology, they would say that the existence of the if clause indicates a cause and effect relationship. That is that the one causes the other. It would be as if I were to say, and I gave this example last time, if it rains, the game will be canceled. Or to put it more in the language of our passage here, the game will be canceled, or the game is canceled if it rains. And you can see how that the raining causes the cancellation of the game. That which follows the if is the cause of whatever happens in the first part of the sentence. So the game will be canceled. If it rains. If it doesn't rains, it won't be canceled. Now, are there examples of the if conditional clause in Scripture being used in a cause and effect relationship? Yes, there are a number of them. First, I would give you Leviticus 19, verse 7, and this is all by way of review, but I'm wanting to reinforce all of this. Leviticus 19, verse 7, so if it is eaten at all on the third day, it is an offense, it will not be accepted. Now, that refers to a sacrifice, and they were to sacrifice it on one day and eat it the next. If it's eaten on the third day... It will not be accepted, it will be an abomination, an offense. And so you can see that eating something on the third day caused it, that is the sacrifice, to be an abomination or an offense. One thing causes the other. If it's eaten, it's an offense. If, cause, effect, get it? Romans 7 verse 2 is another example of that. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning her husband. So the death of the woman's husband releases her from the law and from her marriage vows concerning her husband. As long as he is alive, she is bound to them. His death causes her to be released from them. So she is released if this thing happens. It's a cause and effect relationship. But the question is, is that the only way the conditional sentences are used in Scripture is just as a cause-and-effect relationship? And the answer to that is no. We use them all the time to describe, even in the English language, an evidence-to-inference relationship. That is to say that what follows the if is to be taken as evidence that the statement in the first part of the sentence is true. So what comes after if gives evidence of the original statement being true. That is an evidence-to-inference. In other words, the inference, the conclusion that we draw, is that we are partakers if, this is the evidence, we hold fast to Christ in our confidence all the way into the end. It is an inference, an evidence to inference relationship between the clauses. Is there evidence of this in Scripture? Are there examples of this in Scripture? And there are. And I quoted one to you earlier, you probably didn't catch it, but it was in John 8, verse 31, where Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed, again, the shallow, uncommitted, fake belief, to those Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, that's the conditional sentence, then you are my disciples indeed. You're truly my disciples, that is true, if the evidence you continue in his word. Now it is not continuing in his word that makes us his disciples, as if this continuing in his word causes our discipleship. What is the evidence that we are his disciples? We continue in his word. Again, from the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Now, is doing what Jesus commands the cause of us being his friends, or... Does us doing what he commands give evidence of the fact that we are his friends? Doing what he commands is the evidence that we are his friends. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another, right? If you are this disciple, if this evidence is there. And there's, I listed for you a number of examples of that in scripture, and that, that evidence to inference relationship between the conditional phrases. Now, I remind all of you this for this, try it again. I remind all of you of this for two reasons. One, to reinforce the distinction between these two things, because it is very helpful. But then to add this piece of information. Here's the piece of information that is essential. If I just left it with all of that, which I did last time intentionally, because I felt it was kind of overwhelming to go through all of that the first time. But now that we've reviewed it, I'm adding something to this. If we just left it at that, that there are two possible ways of taking the conditional clauses. right? Cause and effect and evidence to inference. And there are examples of cause and effect in Scripture There are examples of evidence to inference in Scripture. If I just left it at that, then we might all sit here and say, well, then I guess I have to choose between two completely different ways of interpreting the passage based upon what? Based upon how I feel, based upon my theological position, based upon my traditions and how I grew up, Right? So if I'm in our, in our minion and I believe you can lose your salvation, then I guess I'm going to say it's a, con, a cause and effect relationship. But if I'm on the reform side and I believe you can't lose your salvation, then I'm just going to say, well, I believe that it's an evidence-to-inference relationship. If we just left it at that, we'd have to say, well, I guess we just have two options and we just choose whichever one we want to choose based upon how we feel today. Right? It's Wednesday, I feel this way, so I'm going to believe it's this. How do we choose between the two? Is there something in the text or is there something in the conditional phrases themselves that would indicate to us that it must be interpreted either as a cause and effect or as an evidence of inference? And the answer to that is yes. There is something about conditional sentences and the way they're used in Scripture that indicate to us that you must interpret it this way. And here is that additional piece of information. You cannot go to just any church in town and get this type of stuff. You realize that? Evidence to inference, cause and effect. All the joys and delights of what I'm pouring on you this morning. This is something you can only get here. So if you are, if you have a heart, if you are insomniac, this is the place to come on a Sunday morning. If we just had to choose between those two, we would need some other kind of indicator as to exactly how we should interpret it. And here it is. If the sentence in the conditional sentence describes an event, a contextually specific event, something happening, then the conditional phrase is, guess what? A cause and effect, because we're talking about an event. If the conditional sentence describes contextually, in its context, a singular event, then it is consistently in Scripture a cause and effect relationship between the clauses. And both of the examples that I gave to you fit that paradigm. If her husband dies, that is an event that happens, then this is true. The one thing, the one event causes the other. If he eats it on the third day, then it is an abomination. The eating of it on the third day causes it to be an abomination. Why? Because the eating and the dying are both specifically, contextually specific events, individual events. But if the sentence describes a condition or a state of being, a situation, a condition, or a state of being, something, a condition or situation in which you find yourself, if the sentence describes that, then consistently in Scripture, it is describing an evidence-to-inference relationship. Both of the examples that I gave you earlier are consistent with that observation. Um, John 8.31, If you continue on my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. Is being a disciple an event? Or is it a state of being, a condition, or a situation? It is an event, or not, sorry, it's not an event, it is a situation or a condition or a state of being. If you are in this situation, the evidence that this is true of you, that you are in this situation, is that you will keep my word. Uh, if you are my friends, or if you keep my word, then you are friends of mine, my friends. In John 15, it's the same thing. Being a friend or a disciple of Jesus is a situation or a condition in which we find ourselves. Therefore, consistently in Scripture, when we have in the conditional sentence, describing a situation or a condition, consistently it is an evidence-to-inference statement. When it describes a specific event, consistently it is a cause-and-effect relationship. So back to Hebrews chapter 3, what do we have in verse 14? Or verse 6, let's start with verse 6. Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence. Whose house we are. Is that describing an event, or is that describing a condition, a situation, or a circumstance in which we are? Whose house we are. It's describing a situation, right? A condition, not an event. Therefore, if we're going to consistently interpret it, it must be an evidence-to-inference statement. Look at verse 14. We have become partakers of Christ. Is being a partaker of Christ a one-time event that happens that triggers something else, or is it a condition or a situation in which we as believers are? It is a condition or a situation in which we as believers are. Therefore, consistently, it is an evidence-to-inference statement, not a cause-and-effect relationship. So if you are an Arminian and you want to say, look, it describes a cause and effect. My holding on makes me a partaker. No, that's inconsistent. Since it is describing a condition or a situation, it's not a cause and effect relationship between the clauses. It's an evidence to inference. My partaking of Jesus Christ is evidenced by the fact that I hold fast my confidence all the way until the end. So in no way can we say that it's a cause and effect relationship. It must be an evidence to inference relationship, which means this. The evidence that I am a believer is the fact that I hold all the way to Christ to the very end. It's the evidence. My holding fast to the end doesn't gain me salvation on that last day and cause salvation to be a reality. My holding fast all the way to the end is the evidence that I am a true and genuine believer. And we can look at somebody who through the midst of life's trials and difficulties and circumstances, they hold tight to Christ all the way into the end, and they never give up, they never turn back, they never relent, they never abandon him. And we look at them at the very end and we say that is the ultimate evidence of salvation. Because an unbeliever would have turned around a long time ago. But the fact that they continue all the way to the very end is the proof of their salvation. So if we just had those two options, we might go back and forth between the two options, wondering how we should interpret it. But consistently in Scripture, those conditional phrases describe us in a situation or a condition or be taken as evidence to inference statements. And In chapter 3, verse 6 and chapter 3, verse 14, they both are conditional in situations and therefore they must be taken as an evidence to inference. The proof of my salvation is that I endure all the way to the end. The evidence of salvation is perseverance to the end. And is that the only evidence of salvation, by the way? Is that the only thing we have to look at? We might look at other other evidences of salvation and say, well, the person... Repented of their sin. They turn from their sin. They mortify sin. They fight against sin They have a love for righteousness and holiness. They love a love for worship. They have a love for God's people Uh, They have a spiritual gift that they use and employ in serving one another. They want to be obedient to scripture They're very teachable and learnable and they want to obey Christ in all things and they continue to progress in sanctification And 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 love scripture and love the preaching of the word and love to read scripture All of these would be evidences of salvation But we have to add to that list the fact that they continue all the way to the very end and if you find somebody who for a period of time seems to love scripture and seems to love worship and seems to love the people of God and wants to serve him, but slowly that passion and, and those evidences begin to wane and you start to question, them, and eventually they turn around and they walk away from Christ and apostatize from him. What do we conclude? Do we conclude that they were saved because they said a prayer when they were four and they were baptized when they were six? and they came to church until they left home? We conclude they're believers based upon that evidence? Or do we say it is possible for people to fabricate and to fake all kinds of evidences of salvation, but there's one thing that they cannot fabricate or fake, and that is true and genuine saving faith all the way through an entire life of difficulties and trials and, and, and not even abandoning Christ on their deathbed. That is a fruit of salvation that you cannot fake. A lot of other stuff can be faked. Our emotions can be faked. Our love for truth can be faked. Our love for other people can be faked. All of that can be fabricated, sometimes for years. Sometimes it can be fabricated for years, and nobody notices it. But there's one thing that you cannot fabricate, and that is a clinging to Jesus Christ all the way through to your last breath. When somebody gets to the end and they breathe their last breath, and it is a confession of their love and faith in Jesus Christ, you can look at that and say, "Uh, I have confidence of where they are at. Because it is that perseverance to the end, which is the evidence that we are partakers. It is the evidence that we are his house. It doesn't cause those things to be true. It's the evidence that those things are indeed true. We have become partakers of Christ, and so we share his life. We share in his righteousness. We share in his holiness. We share in his eternal life and his divine nature because the Spirit of God lives within us. And the evidence that all of those things are true and that our sharing in those things is genuine and true is the fact that we persevere all the way to the end. right, now all of that was by way of review. I know that was a bit heavy. So now we'll finally get to verse six and let's look at the text more specifically. Sorry, not verse six, verse 14. For a moment there, you thought, oh, we're going back to verse 6 again? <laughs> verse 14, we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. That word holding fast there is intended, I believe, to intentionally contrast with the apostate mentioned in verse 12 that we looked at last week. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil and believing heart that falls away and apostatizes from the living God. Right There is the apostate of verse 12 who, who in the midst of his supposed profession in Jesus Christ Apostatizes and turns away from that in the midst of the difficulty and goes back to the Old Testament sacrifices, back to his former life. Contrasting with that is verse 14, the one who is a partaker and who holds fast, who clings to his assurance and his faith all the way until the very end. We see holding fast is, is mentioned three times in our, in this warning passage. It's mentioned at the beginning as an introduction to the warning passage. That's verse six that we looked at where we're told that we hold fast our confidence. Here in verse 14, it says we are to hold fast our assurance, firm until the end. And then if you look at chapter 4, verse 14, as a conclusion to the warning passage, the author says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So in chapter 3, verse 6, we hold fast. In chapter 3, verse 6, we hold fast our confidence. Verse 14, our assurance. And chapter 4, verse 14, our confession. Those are just three simple ways of describing the same thing. It is a clinging to our faith, our confidence, our assurance, our confession in Jesus Christ. That is the evidence of our salvation. A holding fast gives evidences of the reality of salvation, just, like, just as turning back evidences that they were never saved to begin with. This is one of the things that perplexes those of us who believe in, in, in uh, eternal security or that in the security of the believer, is we look at people who make a profession of faith, And they get baptized and they go, are on fire for the Lord supposedly for a period of time. And then they, it's like the flame just gets blown out and they walk away from Christ and have nothing to do with the church or Christianity or Jesus Christ after that. And they completely apostatize and turn from it. And then we all sit around and scratch our heads and say, I wonder what happened to that individual. Are they saved or not saved? Well, some people say, I just don't know. I mean, he prayed the prayer, he got baptized, he checked the box, he came forward at the meeting. I saw it myself. He was really on fire for a long period of time. Listen, The evidence that that faith is not genuine, that it does not save, is the fact that they did not continue all the way to the end. That's the evidence. This is what Scripture says is the evidence of a false faith. They apostatize. They walk away from it. I went to Bible college with people whom I sat next to, sang next to, prayed next to, preached with, ministered with, who today make no profession of faith whatsoever and have totally apostatized from the Christian religion. How do you explain that? They fabricated evidences for a long period of time. But the reality of salvation was not there. These were not true believers. How do I know that? On the testimony of Scripture, I know that because they did not hold fast all the way to the end. Because a true believer would. A false believer doesn't. And it is good for the church, and it is good for us, and family members, and for everybody else, when that fake faith is exposed for all to see, and those who are not really of us leave us and depart from us. That is a good thing. We hate to see it happen. We would rather that they were believers and that that faith was genuine, but it is better when that is exposed as the fake faith that it is so that they are forced out, literally. We want that to be exposed. Then we know that we need to evangelize them. Then we know that they are the mission field. So that is a good thing. And we have to be thankful when that happens. And It breaks our hearts, but at least we can see some good in that. And what is it that we are to hold fast to? This text says, the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. That's another way of saying... We are to hold fast to the faith that we had at the beginning. The word translated assurance there comes appears again in chapter 11, verse 1, where the author is describing and defining faith. In Hebrews 11, 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the confidence or the conviction of things not seen. Uh, it is that certainty. Faith is not a, a blind leap into a dark chasm. It's not just saying, okay, I'm going to believe something that goes against my rationality, against my logic, against my common sense, but I'm going to believe it anyway. Faith is an assurance, a conviction a certainty that we have of something that we cannot see based upon the testimony of one who knows and has vouchsafed it to us. So when God says something, my faith is taking God at his word. And I believe it to be true, even though I cannot see it. I believe it to be true, even though uh, my, 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 none of my senses can pick that up. I believe it to be true and I have an assurance of it. That's what faith is. It is the assurance or conviction, the confidence that something is true, even though I cannot see it. And so that word assurance is used here in the passage. We are to hold fast, our assurance, literally, our faith, our confidence, our conviction that we of what we know to be true, that which we had at the beginning, we are to hold fast that all the way to the very end. So the believer is one whose faith is the same at the end as it was at the beginning. And this is key. A believer is not one who at one time believed something and now no longer believes it. A believer is one who currently believes And the faith that they have at the end is the same faith they had at the beginning. So you you approach that dying saint who's on their deathbed, and their body is riddled with some incurable disease, and with their very last breaths they are telling you how precious Christ is to them. That's their dying faith. And they are longing to see the face of the Savior. And they cannot wait until they breathe their last breath. All of their time on earth is done. They just want to go home and to see the Savior. And you say, what kind of faith is that? I'll tell you what kind of faith it is. It is the exact same faith that they had at the very beginning of their salvation. That assurance and that confidence that they had when they said, at that very first moment, I believe. And I understand it. That faith is the same faith that continues all the way through their life, no matter how long they live, no matter what difficulties they go through, what trials they face, it goes all the way to the end of their life, and that faith is the faith that they have firm until the end, their last dying breath, is an expression of the same faith that, that brought them new life to begin with. It's the same faith. We are to hold fast the assurance, our confidence, our conviction, all the way to the very end, because it is that assurance that we had at the beginning, that we cling to at the very end, that is the evidence of our salvation. And that is the saving faith that is possessed by every believer at the moment of their dying breath. So a believer is not somebody who says, yeah, you know, I was a Christian one time. But not anymore. Bart Ehrman, the famous critic and atheist who makes millions off of attacking God and selling his books, he was a student at Moody Bible College for years. He studied under some of the, great, some of the best New Testament scholars that Christianity has to offer today. And he will tell you, I was a Christian at one point. In spite of what Bart Ehrman says, I can tell you, he was not a Christian at any point. Because if he was a Christian at one point, that faith that he had back then would have carried him through all the way to the very end. But now that he has turned his back on Jesus Christ, there is no sense in which you can say he was a Christian at any point in his life. He never was. The fact that he has left and abandoned all of that is evidence that he was never a partaker of Christ to begin with. The difference between those who believe that you can lose your salvation and those who do not believe you can lose your salvation This is key. It is not a difference on how we view a decision that we make. Oftentimes, this difference, that is how it's characterized. Let's say if you believe that you can lose your salvation, then you simply believe that a decision that you made is a reversible decision. You stepped into salvation, you can step out of salvation. At one moment, you believed and you said, I'm going to believe this and, and trust in this. And another moment, you stopped believing and you stopped trusting in this. So you were in Christ and you were out of Christ. And you go back and forth or you can go back and forth. And once you go back, you can't go forth again. Different Arminians cash that out a different way. But they'll say, basically, we believe that the decision that you make is a reversible decision. You got yourself in, you can get yourself out. Now, listen, that's consistent Arminian theology. Give it to the Arminians. They're at least consistent with that. They believe that they got themselves into salvation. They believe that they can get themselves out of salvation. And then somebody will say, so the difference between that and those of us who are Reformed, who believe you cannot lose your salvation, is simply that we on this side of the aisle believe that once that decision is made, you cannot go back on it. It's like stepping through a door, and once the door shuts behind you, there's no handle, there's no latch, there's nothing for you to grab on. You can't open that door and go back through again. You got caught in a trap and you can't walk out like Elvis. You got caught in a trap, you can't walk out, you came into salvation, and now, whether you like it or not, here I am. And I can't reverse it, I can't undo it, because I made that decision, and if I had thought it through, I might have made a different decision, but I made that decision, and so now I'm in, and I can't go back. That is not the difference between these two camps. The difference between these two camps is the difference in how we view the nature of faith itself. That is the most fundamental issue. See, the Arminian believes that the faith that we place in Jesus Christ for salvation is something that any, that all of mankind can do. Any sinner that you pass on the street is able by an act of their own will, their own intellect, their own decision to make a decision and to place faith in Jesus Christ. That the faith that saves them is an act of human will. It is an act of a human decision. It is something inherent or capable, or that all of us are capable of. We just need to pre- be presented with the right information to make the right decision. And since every person can make that decision, everybody has that ability, the person who that, that that it that the faith that saves us is merely the product of a human, it is an expression of a human volition or a human will. Those who are on the reformed side, on my side, say that the faith that saves us is a divine gift from God. Because Acts chapter 5, Acts chapter 11, 2 Timothy chapter 2, I think it's verse 25 and following, all refer to repentance as a gift that God grants. Not only that, but the faith to believe itself is a gift from God. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul says, It has been granted to you, Philippians, not only to believe on Christ, but also to suffer for his name. This is a gift. You have been given the gift to suffer for Christ, just as you were given the gift by God to believe upon him. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, it's by grace we've been saved through faith. And that, the faith that brings us salvation, it's not of ourselves. We are not born again by a human will, a human action, a human decision that we make. We are born again because God sovereignly regenerates the heart and grants us repentance, turns us from our sin, and gives us the faith to believe upon his son. He makes Christ irresistible to us. He doesn't do this apart from human will. He doesn't do this in conflict to human will, but it is not the product of human will. My human will expresses a divine act. So God does the divine act, granting repentance and the faith to believe. And the belief that I have, the faith that I have, is a supernatural faith, a gift given by God, a gift that is the product of his regenerating work in my heart. And because it is not an expression of my humanity or my human volition, it cannot die and it cannot fail because it is a divine gift. It is a supernatural gift that saves God's elect. See, the difference between Armenians and Calvinists, Arminians and Reforms, if you will, if you don't like the term Calvinism, I'm scared of that word, whatever. If you don't, if the difference between the Arminian position and the Reformed position is not that we view the decision differently as being reversible or irreversible. The difference is how we view the nature of faith itself. Is it merely a human expression of a human will, the product of man's doing? Or is it a divine and sovereign gift that God grants and that he gives? If it is a divine and sovereign gift that God grants and that he gives, then that salvation cannot be lost. If it is merely a human action, the result of a human will or human effort, (laughs) then just like you got yourself in, you can get yourself out. Just like you made the decision, you can unmake the decision. That is the difference between the two camps. How we view the nature of saving faith itself. Not how we view the nature of the decision. How we view the nature of the human will how we view the nature of the gift of faith that saves and regenerates. Because we believe, well, let me back up and say this. There, There are some who would, like me, affirm that you cannot lose your salvation. But they would say, Jim, though I affirm your conclusion, I deny all of the steps that you laid out to get to that conclusion. I deny that repentance is a gift. I deny that faith is a gift. I deny that God is sovereign in it. I deny that God is going to save all of his elect. I deny that he did anything before the foundation of the world to secure in any way the outcome of my decision or my faith. I deny all of your presuppositions, all of your premises of the argument. But I agree with your conclusion. I see, what that individual is doing is they are arguing for a reformed conclusion from Arminian premises. You can't do that. Any Arminian on the face of the planet will have you for lunch. If you try and do that it's inconsistent because the minute they take all of your chickens out of the chicken coops and make them visit with each other they're going to realize there are all kinds of conflicts between these theologies that you say you hold you cannot argue a reformed position from an Arminian, granting all of the Arminian perspectives you can't do that it's inconsistent because i believe that scripture teaches that it is not our decision that saves us it's not the nature of our decision or the nature of human will that is ultimately the cause of my security Scripture, I agree, argues that you are secure in your salvation if you are a Christian. I agree with that. I believe that once you express that genuine, saving, repentant faith in Jesus Christ, that you are saved and secured, and that Christ will keep you all the way to the end. But how does Scripture argue with that? Does Scripture say that the decision to trust Christ is an irreversible decision? Is that what it says? You look up in a concordance the words irreversible decision, and you'll come up with a whole list of what? Nothing. It's not in there. At all, because it's not based upon that at all. But what scripture does argue is you are secure because God chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. You specifically. Not some indiscriminate group, not a class. He chose you specifically in Christ before the foundation of the world. Your name, you, he chose. Not just to do some general work of salvation we're gonna keep mysterious and undefined until later on. He specifically chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And he predestined us to adoption and to glory and to trust in his son. And then in time, as an expression of that predetermined will which God has done, he knows those who are his and he draws them to himself, to his son, And by the power of the Holy Spirit, he does that convincing and convicting work in their hearts, regenerating them, granting them repentance, granting them the gift of faith, bringing them into Christ, pouring upon them all of those blessings that he has secured in his son. And then Jesus himself has promised, that one I will not cast out. That one I will raise up at the end. That one is mine. The father gave him to me. And because he is mine, he's my sheep and he will not ever perish. It's impossible. I'll raise him up on the last day. That's how Scripture argues for the security of the believer. Not that the decision is reversible versus irreversible. Because of what God has done, because of what Christ has secured in his doing and in his dying for us, we are secure. Our security is not based upon the nature of decision. Our security is based upon the will and the predetermined plan of God who set it all in motion before time ever began. That is what is the basis of our security. So if you say, I agree with you that believers are secure but I disagree with all of your theology that leads to that conclusion. Guess what? You're inconsistent. The consistent one is the Arminian who says, look, I disagree with all of your theology, Jim, and I believe you can lose your salvation. I will at least applaud you for being consistent in your theology. At least you have that going for you. But don't grant the entire Arminian theology and then say, but I believe that once you stumble into that decision, it's irreversible. And then once you stumble into that decision, you can live like a pagan, you can cuss like a heathen, you can have no appetite for spiritual things whatsoever, but because you made the decision, you can't go back through the door. You're in there and you're locked in there. No, no. Scripture says that individual who swears like a pagan and lives like a heathen is a pagan and a heathen. Why? Because they've never been saved. If they had been saved, they would be sanctified and they would be secure. So we have here in verse 14 a description of the believer. We are partakers of Christ. What is the evidence of that? We hold fast to that confession and that faith all the way to the very end. That is the evidence of our salvation. We are secure not because of a decision that we made. We are secure because of a decree of our sovereign God who has decreed to save a people for himself. If you're not in Jesus Christ, you're in a dangerous and precarious position. And you need, you must repent and believe today or you will be like these unbelievers described in the rest of chapter 3. You are provoking God, you are testing him, and you will most certainly perish. And God commands you this day to repent and to believe, so that you may have eternal life. There is provision in the death of Christ for any and all who will come to him. Come to him by faith. Come to him repentant and humble, acknowledging your need for him. He will not cast you off. He will save you. He will do what he has promised to do. And I command you this day to come to him in repentance and faith that you may be saved. Let's bow together. Our Father, we are so grateful for the salvation that you have purchased in the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because of what you have done, your people are saved and secure forever. Because of what you have done, you have guaranteed our salvation. You have worked to do all that is necessary that we might have eternal life. And we thank you and praise you for your great goodness and kindness, which has wrought the wonderful mercy of our salvation. And if we have a thousand tongues to sing and all of eternity to sing your praise, we could never exhaust your manifold greatness, your goodness, your grace, and your mercy. And so with all humility and, and, and being reminded again this morning that our salvation is dependent entirely upon Jesus Christ, we thank you. We thank you that we have nothing of which to boast, not our repentance, not our faith, not our wisdom, not our intellect, but we rejoice and boast only in Jesus Christ our Lord